another podcast from Lab News. Hope you're all well. Thank you very much for being here. Now, as I record this here in the UK, it feels very much as if we're on the cusp of the much talked about second wave of COVID-19 crashing over the country. So it seems as though social distancing is a depressingly long term situation. But I think it's time to take some real consolation from the fact that we're not alone. Fish, ants and lobsters, uh, all the way to, you know, primates and birds. It really runs through the animal kingdom. I think the lobster one is actually as close as I've seen to the COVID situation. Yeah, that's right. Amazingly, it turns out that humans are not the only creatures to socially distance in order to avoid disease. Now, we'll learn more about those sniffy lobsters in a minute. But first of all, that was the voice of Julia Buck. She's an assistant professor of biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And she is a disease ecologist, which means she studies the diverse ways in which animals use behaviours to avoid infection. Who better to talk to in our current situation? And we do discuss what, if anything, we as humans can learn from the way that animals do this. But before that, I wanted to talk to Julia about what she calls the landscape of disgust. So animals really do a lot of avoiding of parasites. Ecologists have actually known for 20 years that prey avoid predators and the fear of predators is ecologically important. And so just about three, two two to three years ago, some colleagues and I um, realized that this landscape of fear really applied um, to parasites and their hosts as well. And so we published a paper in science called A Landscape of Disgust. And it was about how there's parasites on the landscape. There's all kinds of infection risks on any landscape that any animal is going to experience. And the animals are going to try to stay away whether it's infected conspecifics, like people are staying away from one another right now because we don't know who's infected, Um, whether it's staying away from objects uh, like feces or carcasses that are uh, likely to make you sick, or whether it's habitats that you're staying away from or or even modifying to be less likely to infect you. All of these are strategies that animals use, and it turns out that people do it too. Yes, we certainly do, don't we? Whether it's socially distancing or correctly wearing our masks or indeed looking shiftily at anyone that isn't doing those things in an enclosed space, there's most certainly a new hierarchy of etiquette when it comes to social behaviour. And it's not just logic, really, is it? There's something definitely emotional, instinctual about the way we react. Several weeks ago, um, it was about the time, it was really a few months ago at this point, it was about the time that... um, COVID uh, lockdowns really went into effect. I was feeling pretty cooped up. And so I went on a socially distant hike. I, I, I went for a hike by myself. And, you know, occasionally you run into people on the trail. And as I was passing someone, they went, <coughs> and I just, I just froze. You have this instinctual avoidance within you um, of objects and people and, and, and species that are likely to 
infect you. We developed this sense of disgust that keeps us away from things that at least at one point in evolutionary history were major infection risks. Carcasses are another thing. You know, you're on a hike, you come upon a deer carcass, right? You're going to move away because it's disgusting. Why? Because throughout evolutionary history, you would get sick if you hung out in the vicinity of carcasses. So in essence here, the feeling of disgust is an instinctual layer that acts as an infection avoidance system. Yes, that's exactly right. And animals, I mean, all the way from sea cucumbers, primates, um, we have good evidence of infection avoidance. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people kind of stop there and don't think about how it applies to humans, but it absolutely applies to humans. So what's not being argued here is that animals have a sense of disgust that I suppose in many ways is a uniquely human thing. But the way in which they do go about organising their behaviours to avoid infection is rooted often in their ability to detect certain cues. And this brings us neatly back to the past masters of social distancing in the animal kingdom, lobsters. Yeah, it's a, it's a really amazing thing that such a basic creature, an, an invertebrate at that, can 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 do this. But when you really get down to it, I mean, the, they're not consciously doing it. So the ancestor that could do it survived and went on to have offspring, and those offspring do it too. So what are we talking about here? What exactly do they do? Well, back in 2006, a study came out in Nature by a disease ecologist called Donald Beringer. Now, it was known that Caribbean spiny lobsters can suffer from a lethal viral infection known as PAV1. And it was also known, perhaps surprisingly, that juvenile spiny lobsters in particular are very social and generally prefer to live together by sharing dens. But of course, one of these communal dens stuffed to the rafters with juvenile lobsters is an ideal stomping ground for a virus, which, given the lethality of PAV1, would have devastating consequences. So in his study, Donald managed to show that healthy juvenile lobsters actively avoid infected lobsters. In fact, if they happen to be sharing one of these communal dens with an infected lobster, the healthy lobster will leave and put itself at considerable risk in the open ocean. You know, when the benefits exceed the costs, right, when the benefits outweigh the costs, then we see them doing it. And so from the lobsters leaving that den, what we can pretty much say is that that disease, that virus is so costly to them that it outweighs all the other costs that they're going to experience by leaving the den, which is to say predation risk. And so in that case, the lobsters are choosing to put themselves at risk of predators as opposed to... Um, you know, the, the disease risk clearly outweighs any, any possible predation risk. As to how they do it, well, there's no nice way to put this. Olfaction is key in a lobster's world. They smell the urine of the infected individuals and at that point decide it's best to socially distance. Yes, and it should be noted that animals live in a very different sensory world than um and humans typically, we, so we, we generally sense the world primarily through vision. And for animals, that's not true. Uh, most, you know, something like a, like a lobster is really sensing the world primarily through, you know, through chemicals. 
And so it's not very surprising then that the chemicals are where it's at for the lobster, that the, the chemicals are the right way to detect sickness. So given our existence, which is of course vastly different from that of the other members of the animal kingdom, are there any parallels really to be drawn between the way we socially distance and they do? Well, and so there's some complications here. Um, so when you're talking about an animal, they have to detect it directly. For example, when I was on that hike and somebody coughed, I froze. That's the instinctual part that I still am evolved to have this sense of disgust and to try to avoid. That's very much um, like what animals have. But then layered on top of that, humans have um, other things. So we don't actually, like, we don't actually have to detect a COVID, a COVID positive person in our vicinity to put on a mask, right? We've been told that COVID is out there. And then we take measures to protect ourselves, like social distancing and masks and so on and so forth. But we don't have to anymore detect it ourselves. We still have the capacity to, you know, if somebody's in our vicinity and they're coughing or sneezing or whatever, we still have that instinctual reaction. But we are layered on top of that. We have methods of communicating this sort of thing, including the internet, which allows us to disseminate that threat, you know, that, that information about the threat very widely, globally, in an instant, and tell everybody, hey, there's something out there, you have to wear a mask and you have to do it now, right? That's an enormous advantage. But there's also the, the, the flip side of that coin, which is, there's tons of misinformation out there. There's these conspiracy theories. And a lot of folks are going to say, well, where's my evidence that this is real? We have a lot of COVID deniers in the U.S. who just say, this is not real. This is a hoax meant to get Trump out of office. Yes, we can draw as many parallels as we like between how we react to a pandemic like this and how others in the animal kingdom do. But one thing I think we can certainly say for sure is that lobsters don't suffer from conspiracy theories. And I know there is a real temptation for anyone with a scientific mindset or an interest in the way that these things work scientifically to dismiss these conspiracy theories out of hand. But there are reasons why they come about that are relevant to scientists and how they do their work. The problem with this virus is that it's 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 novel. Even the scientists don't know what they're doing. We're starting from square zero. And so the, so the public is watching for the very first time, a lot of them are watching the sausage being made. And we're, yeah, there's gonna be, you know, a lot of disagreement among the scientists about all kinds of things. You know, I started wearing my mask in early March here, everywhere. And I was getting so many dirty looks. I mean, it was crazy. And now the dirty looks are for people not wearing masks. Um, and so, you know, at the time when I started wearing a mask, our, our leaders were saying, no need, right? The public, I, 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 I kind of understand where some people are coming from saying that the, the recommendations have definitely changed. But that's science. And if you don't understand the process of science, then, you know, it's not going to make any sense to you. But that just tells me that we need to educate people about the process of science better. 
But it isn't just policymakers and the public that need to make sure their thinking is clear on subjects like this. And then you have the problem that science is plagued by the need, you know, all of us have to show productivity. Yeah. And so when something new comes down the pipe, like COVID, you have a lot of people view it, a lot of scientists viewing it as a, ba- as a bandwagon that they need to jump on yeah. because they can need to show productivity, you know? And that's, that's great, but it leads to some bad science. Um, there was a preprint um, that came out uh, just this week that was absolutely ridiculous. It tried to correlate uh, vegetable consumption with uh, COVID mortality. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt here to point out to you where that paper is. So if you want to take a look at this, go to MedArchive, that's M-E-D-R-X-I-V, and the name of the paper is Association Between Consumption of Vegetables and COVID-19 Mortality at a Country Level in Europe. Now, as Julia said, it's a preprint server, and for all those that aren't imbibed in the world of science, basically that means that the researchers have published their work online before it's gone to peer review. So, what did Julia think? They came to the conclusion that uh, the more cucumbers a country ate, you know, grams per person, the less COVID mortality they you know, it's just unbelievable. It's like, this is bad science. It's trying to, you know, get your name out there, get jump on a bandwagon and so on. So jump on the COVID bandwagon. It's not helping. And especially it hurts us all in the eyes of the public because the public are like, you know, any, any thinking person sees that and goes, what the heck? Okay, time to move on from cucumbers. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask Julia, given her experience studying diseased populations of animals, is the link between the size of the population and the severity of the disease spread. It's hard not to think that we've suffered so badly because there are so many of us. But does this mean then that we'd be better off disease-wise if we were more solitary creatures? That's an incredibly complicated question. So first, let me say that um, there was a time when humans didn't live in large societies like we do now. Um, Basically, hunter-gatherers did not have big problems with these respiratory pathogens. This was not really a a threat, right? These types of pathogens, you know, um, they, they require large, very interconnected societies to get around. A thousand years ago, if COVID had spilled over from bats in Wuhan, China, it never would have gotten to the UK nor to the US, but now it does because our societies are so interconnected. Respiratory contagious um, uh, person-to-person transmitted diseases like COVID are certainly a bigger problem for us now. However, one of the neat things about some parasites is that the, the world can actually work a very different way. Um, in 2017 in ecology, I, I published a paper about how the risk of infection with trematode parasites is actually lower for snails that are in larger groups and higher if you're 
alone. And the reason is because this parasite is not transmitted from snail to snail to snail to snail, right? It has a complex life cycle. And so transmitted to the snails from birds. So the birds fly around the marsh and they poop out eggs of trematode parasites into the marsh. And then the snails have to, while they're eating mud and so on, gobble up those eggs in order to get infected. And so you can imagine the supply of infective stages depends on how many birds are visiting that patch of marsh. And the more snails that are there in that patch, then you're dividing those infective stages, whatever the birds brought there, you're dividing them by more and more and more snails. And so it becomes like a dilution, basically. Um, the, more, the more snails you have in your group, the lower your risk of getting infected. Getting back to your question, your question was, do solitary animals have fewer parasites? And the answer is, well, they have fewer parasites that are transmitted in the way that COVID is transmitted, which is person to person or, you know, host to host. Yeah, they have fewer of those, but they, they don't necessarily have fewer parasites overall. Now, one of the other things I wanted to talk with Julia about before I let her go was the idea that we're now more exposed to pandemics like COVID-19 because of our impact on biodiversity. This has become incredibly controversial in disease ecology. So there, there have been a lot of mechanisms proposed. Um, one of the main ones, uh, the perhaps best example of this quote-unquote dilution effect whereby biodiversity dilutes disease risk, um, is thought to be Lyme disease. Um, and what they have said is that in um, an intact forest with lots of different kinds of species, uh, hosts for your ticks to find and parasitize, not as many ticks are going to be chewing on white-footed mice. And white-footed mice are the most competent hosts for Lyme disease. So the tick is most likely to pick up Lyme from a white-footed mouse. So if you have not just white-footed mice, but also robins and lizards and chipmunks and possums and a million other hosts in your intact forest, and they're not present in the disturbed forest, then you might see lower risk of Lyme disease there. Now the naysayers have said, well, that's wonderful, but who says that there are only X number of ticks in your forest? As you add robins and possums and 16 other hosts, you're, you still have the same number of ticks biting white-footed mice. Now you have more ticks. That's one mechanism that has been proposed. That's probably the most popular one. Um, my take on it is that there are some species that when you add or subtract them from an ecosystem are going to increase or decrease risk of disease. Um, there's no question in my mind that um, if you take white-footed mice out of your ecosystem, your Lyme disease risk is going to go down. That's that's obvious to me. But for, for every species that that you publish a paper on that that says that that shows that that species increases risk for some focal host that you care about, like humans, I can find six others that don't affect risk at all, and one more that decreases risk for your focal host. I think the conservationists have really 
jumped onto this as a way to get people to care about concert and invest in conservation. Hey, if we, you know, you can protect your own health by protecting biodiversity. Nice if true, but is it that simple? That's my two cents. But like I said, this is a rabbit hole. If you dig into it, you will find hundreds of papers on this and it's um, very, very complicated. Yeah, so could this be a case then of conservationists selecting a bad reason to do something good when good reasons actually already exist? Controversial? Well, quite plausibly, and I would welcome all of your thoughts on this one way or the other. But I think it's time now to leave the final words with Julia. Thanks very much for being here, everyone, and I'll see you next time. Science needs to stay as pure as it can. We can't be lying. For any, even if there's a good reason, we can't be publishing things that are wrong to to convince people to do X, Y, or Z, that even if X, Y, and Z are great things, we have to, we have to go with the evidence that we have.